Thank you very much for joining us for this CryptoCurry live chat with Mark Coleman. Mark's a, an economic historian who's been spent years looking into all sorts of things from Brexit through to blockchain and is, is going to be looking at what's happened with economic and, and monetary policy in the past and what changes contexts such as uh, Brexit and the, the coronavirus and now blockchain will be bringing to money. So Mark's going to be doing a bit of a deep dive into sort of history and future of, of money for us. Mark, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Eric. It, it's my pleasure. And thanks very much for giving me this opportunity. And although I am going to do a deep dive into history, let me make it immediately relevant because we will be going back a couple of thousand years, but let me make it immediately relevant by issuing a congratulations shout out and a recognition. The congratulations are to Rebecca Rose, her her new husband, Peter, who within the last 24 hours were the first couple, I believe in the world, but I'm open to correction, to get married on blockchain. They exchanged uh, NFTs, non-fungible tokens, this morning. It doesn't sound very romantic, but I'm sure it was romantic for them. And as far as I'm aware, it's a recognition of the growing power of blockchain, not just for the financial purposes for which Satoshi intended it, but increasingly for legal, societal, and even political functions. And let me just recognize that fantastically in the Financial Times today, which I read every day, before I get going on my history tour and bring it up to today, let me start by something that Sir Geoffrey Voss, who is the newly appointed Master of the Rolls in Britain, said today. He said, future generations will not accept a, quote, slow, paper-based and courthouse-centric justice system. And he said that an integrated system would be of tremendous economic value to the UK. And went on to say that I think if you can't vindicate legal rights quickly and effectively and at reasonable cost, then I think business is very severely damaged. I'm very keen that we see a digitized justice system. Unfortunately, he went on to say, and I'm quoting from the Financial Times article of today, Unfortunately, we still have a paper-based county court, which is simply not fit for purpose in 2021. Now, he, he didn't mention blockchain, but it doesn't put a lot of, uh, you don't need a lot of brains to put the dots together about the profundity or profundity of that statement. And we'll come back to that later. Now, the yellow brick road, um, question mark, is blockchain creating a cyber civilization? We know that we have cyber communities. Now it's when we're going to go back in time. Before that, let me say a little bit about me. So I run a consultancy called Octavian. There's the website, www.octavian.ie. And some of the people I've worked for in the past is IBEC, which is the Irish kind of version of the Confederation of British Industry. I ran their financial services division. And I have been economics editor of the Irish Times and an economist with the European Central Bank and a broadcaster on a a radio station called News Talk, which is a national news station and a columnist. And I have authored a couple of books and I make frequent presentations, a couple of whom the examples of which you can see just on the one side of the screen. So a fintech strategy for Ireland is a document that I steered to conclusion with the key experts 
and stakeholders in the uh, financial services and high technology industry some years ago to develop an ecosystem for financial services um, against the backdrop of Brexit, where Ireland particularly has a massive opportunity as a common law system within the EU, where we have fantastic presence of high technology companies and global multinational financial services companies. We have a fantastic opportunity in Ireland to to lead on blockchain, cryptocurrency, and fintech. Some other publications I've mentioned, I've done in the recent uh, past, are an economic response to COVID nineteen, which I wrote in April very quickly last year. I believe it's the first book to analyze the, to do a comparative study of the impact of the pandemic, and come up with solutions to it. And there is also a paper I've done on green finance conditionality and how Europe can lead the financial services sector effort to achieve carbon neutrality by 2050. And I've also chaired a couple of summits in Ireland, like the Raising Capital Summit for the Business Post, which is our main business newspaper, and the Irish Association of Corporate Treasurers virtual annual summit a few months back. So that's enough about me. Let's look at a timeline of monetary revolution. Let's start with a guy called King Croesus in 6th century BC Greece. And I should acknowledge that the Chinese were well ahead of the West here because what Croesus was doing had probably been done in China 500 years before. Uh, so forgive me uh, for, I'm a member of the Ireland China Institute, so my Chinese friends that are watching will forgive the Western bias in this presentation. But Croesus will be familiar to everyone. He issued the first sovereign coin in the Western Hemisphere with a king's head on it. And that was making a statement that, I mean, coins, of course, had been used in the Eastern Mediterranean long before then, but this was the first time that a sovereign put his or her head on a coin. <clears throat> and that is interesting because that brings us to a position that blockchain has not yet attained, but which may yet happen. And in China, we will see later in the presentation how we may be on that point where a sovereign is about to stamp the virtual currency currency in the way that Croesus did two and a half thousand years ago. Then we have the Romans. You gotta love them. They're such fun. Um, and my own my own consultancy has a has a Roman name, so I'm a little bit biased towards them. There are three emperors here of note. Aurelian centralized the mint. There was a lot of jiggery pokery going on with the debasement of currency in various mints in the Roman Empire. He put a stop to that to the point which nearly started a civil war. He had people who were basically debasing the coinage killed, and he restored some authority to the issuance of the currency. But what he didn't do was withdraw the debased coinage. So the problem continued until a chap called Diocletian created a price ledger, which in a way, if you ask me, could be regarded as the first kind of primitive ancient Roman form of blockchain. And then Constantine issued a, a coin called the Solidus, which in some ways was the basis of currency for the ensuing 1500 years. We then have the Chinese, the Tang Dynasty, as their empire expanded, <clears throat> and as their camel routes and elephant routes had to travel farther and farther, and as merchants got fed up ca ca carrying sacks of coin, they invented a system of paper, paper certificates, which became 
claims over the bags of coin which were left behind, and that eventually gave rise to paper currency. Constantine had issued the solidus, which was a gold coin, which restored some certainty to the currency of Rome, but it only did it for the rich. Why? Because it was not fungible. And today we spoke about the two people who got married exchanging non-fungible tokens, NFTs. Well, fungibility is a key issue of what makes a currency successful. Constantine's solidus was great for the rich, but because it wasn't fungible, it left the European economy in the dark ages where if you weren't rich and you needed to trade, you really had to resort to barter because there was not much coinage <coughs> relevant to small or medium-sized purchase. Charlemagne and in England, King Offa solved that problem by, link, by creating 240 denarii to the pound of silver. And that system, by the way, and this makes me feel really old, that endured until 1971 decimalization. And I'm sure everybody else on this is far too young to remember that. <clears throat> but it makes me feel really old that when I was born, a system of currency of pounds, shillings and pence that had been instigated you know, over a thousand years beforehand was still in operation, which I guess brings us to the current half century. And we think that blockchain and cryptocurrency are the beginning, is the beginning of the beginning. Please excuse my cough, by the way. It's, it's not a COVID cough, so don't worry. Even if it was, you couldn't catch it online. But the, the, the last 50 years have probably seen more monetary innovation than the preceding 1500. We've not only had decimalization in Britain and Ireland, we have abandoned the gold standard, which since the era of Constantine, with on and off and some exceptions, was really the, the lodestone of international trading and currency. We've introduced euro dollars, which are basically in the 1970s was an innovation of recognizing offshore dollar deposits and assets. And then in the 1980s, we had the explosion of ATMs, debit balances. Then, of course, 1990s, I had the privilege of working on the euro, the European Central Bank, and we've had the massive decline of cash. When I was born, cash was 80-90% of uh, money in circulation. The economy was cash or close to it. Now, I think it's barely 5%. I don't have the exact figure, but I don't think I'm far off. Now, so blockchain is not the beginning of the beginning. It's the end of the beginning. It's a revolution coming on the back of a revolution. And it's continuing into the 21st century. And what, what we saw in my lifetime was the introduction of computing and cloud computing, the creation, if you will, of a parallel economy and the emergence of cyber communities. But what we saw today with the exchange of NFTs was something that blockchain did and Satoshi did that had not yet been done before. And that was the creation of scarcity on the web, a code that was scarce and non-repeatable. That is the essence of what could be the new digital gold. Because until Satoshi wrote his paper and did his program, in 2009, it was possible to copy anything on the web. He invented a system whereby uniqueness could not be copied. So cyber communities is one thing. 
we are seeing the creation of a cyber economy. The question is, could we see the emergence of a cyber civilization? I'll hopefully get into that a little bit later. I've mentioned Peter Kutcher, Jinsky, and Rebecca Rose. I'm sure we all wish them great happiness. But the fact that they got married in the last 24 hours means that the thought of a cyber civilization, it's not crazy hyperbole. It is something that could actually happen. May not happen, but could happen. Now, to explore why, let's go a little bit deeper back in time. And I hope you'll see that as I do that, that the illustrations I take from different periods of time will hopefully start to ring some familiar bells in your brain. In ancient Greece, the discovery of bronze, and I've mentioned that China was ahead of the West, led to a huge demand for copper and tin. And I'm sorry to break the romance of the story of Helen of Troy and the face that launched us a thousand ships, but it is a possibility that when Homer wrote the Iliad, which is that very romantic story, he was writing an allegory about something more, I suppose, more mundane, which is that the discovery of bronze led to a huge demand for copper and tin and led to copper and tin mining all over Europe. And it's no accident that in Ireland, one of the earliest references to Ireland on an international map is by a Greek called Ptolemy. And the town that he mentions is not Dublin or Ablana, as it was then called, but it's Avoca, which is a town south of Dublin. Why? Because it was a mine. <clears throat> so the face that launched a thousand ships we're all romantics. We'd like to believe it was a beautiful woman. But it was as equally likely that the thousand ships were launched in search of copper and tin, which was needed to make bronze. So we've seen in blockchain an enormous spurt of creativity, innovation, and Bitcoin mining. That seems very familiar to me as a monetary economist, looking back at what happened in Greece two and a half thousand years ago or thereabouts. Then we have the Tang Dynasty, and we don't need to talk about that too much. We'll come back to the Chinese because they're leading innovation again on, on blockchain. But I want to come to the Romans. <clears throat> well, what have the Romans ever done for us? Well, hang about and we may see. Now, Rome in the third century um, AD or uh, common era, as you prefer, had three big problems. Well, it had lots of problems, but the three ones I want to pick out are ones that I want to pick out because they sound quite familiar. The first was the plague. They had the Antonine Plague and they had the Cyprian Plague. The Cyprian Plague is slightly misspelled. There apologies for that. <coughs> the second thing they have also looks quite familiar, and that's political instability. They had nine emperors during the second century, which was an average rage reign of about 11 years but they had thirds they had 29 em emperors in the third century which is an average reign of about three years so if you're an emperor in the third century you want to start watching your back because you've got you're highly likely to get a knife in it why that's relevant to currency we'll come to because currency debasement is the third problem they had by the year 200 common era or AD if you prefer, 50% of the silver denarius was actually silver because the emperors had more and more money to pay the troops because the pay of the troops kept going up. Why? Because the emperors wanted to keep them happy and contented rather than discontented for obvious reasons. 
but that meant shaving the silver off the coins, debasing them and debasing them and debasing them to the point where um, almost at the end of the third century, the silver content of the denarius has gone down to 2%. Well, wh where am I going with that? Well, we are entering into an era, <coughs> we are well into an era, I would say, of prolonged zero interest rates and monetary easing, which I suppose from a bond market point of view, the longer it goes on, it can raise questions as to the capacity of the relevant sovereigns to repay that debt. And that problem was already acute before the pandemic. But with government bond issuance rising by about 20% in the last year, it could become much, much more acute in coming years. Why is it relevant to blockchain? Well, let me say a little bit more about the problem that an emperor called Diocletian had. That's the gentleman whose face you see on the coin. So because of a plague, he fell, faced falling population and a falling labor force. Because of the currency debasement, fewer Roman citizens were willing to accept coin. And the emperor had increasing difficulty paying the troops and purchasing supplies. Aha, now you're Diocletian and you've seen lots of emperors getting knifed by angry troops you want to keep the troops sweet so if you have a problem in that your uh, troops are increasingly unlikely to accept coin in payment because it's debased you have a serious problem that you have to correct and the third problem he has is political instability as i've said emperors getting deposed on average once every three years and there were some years where they actually, there was one year where two emperors, actually the, the, the troops held an auction and they said to two emperors, I can't remember their names, they said, we'll give you the post of emperor, um, we'll give the post of emperor to the, to the, to the person who, who, who increases our pay the most. That's how bad it got. So his solution to this was a non-distributed ledger. His urgent priority was that he had to feed and arm the legions. And the saying of a predecessor of Diocletian, a guy called Severus, was enrich the soldiers and scorn all other men. So just whatever you do, make sure the soldiers are well paid. He had to feed and arm the, uh, and arm the legions, but he had to do it without a currency that was, you know, properly accepted. <coughs> so he basically did it in two steps. The first thing he did was he fixed the relative price of all goods needed to supply the legion. So swords, sandals, barley, wine, somewhere in Rome was a ledger where if you were a legion, if you were a centurion sending your troops off to fight and you needed to know how many swords you need, how many sandals you needed, how, how much barley, how much wine, you could read it all off a central scale. And there was a system of relative pricing. So how, many, uh, how much barley could be traded for a sword? How many amphoras of wine would buy you a helmet? And so on. That was then used to levy a tax in kind across the empire. So instead of raising coin taxation, <coughs> they basically went to the producers of those goods and said, well, you would normally pay us whatever 200 denarii in taxes. The denarii isn't accepted anymore. So please supply us with whatever good you normally produce be it sandals, be it barley, and be it wine. And the result was that for a brief period, given the debasement of official currency, this ledger becomes the de facto currency 
until Constantine introduces the solidus a half century later. We have a monetary dark age then for 400, 500 years. We have a currency for the wealthy that's backed by gold, but the problem is it doesn't really work for the poor because it has a limited fund fungibility. <clears throat> so trade declines, the economy shrinks, not helped by the fact that barbarians are pouring over the over the over the, the, the border. So 500 years later, after the collapse of the Roman Empire, Charlemagne introduces a silver pound divisible by 200 denarii. And that affected some democratization of currency. And again, and this makes me feel really old, but when I was born, that system of one pound equals 240 pence was still there until in 1971, decimalization brought in one to 100, uh, one pound equals 100 pence. <coughs> and if you think about it, that alteration in fungibility from 1 to 240 to 1 to 100 was also a precursor to the digital age because it would be extremely difficult. <coughs> well, it would be more difficult to run a monetary system in an electronic age if you had 240 subunits to one. So by decimalization of currency, it was really a precursor to the revolution that is now happening. Now, <coughs> I just need to make a reference to the Yellow Brick Road title of the presentation because you might be a little bit confused, but there's a reason for it. And it's because in chapter two of my 2009 book on the previous crisis, which is you can see a copy, a cover of the copy there in the top right hand corner um, or left hand corner. I put in a chapter on uh, called Follow the Yellow Brick Road on what had happened to the world's global system of finance since the abandonment of the gold standard in 1971. And what I discovered was that Wizard, The Wizard of Oz, which we all know is a popular 1940s children film that you, and you watch it every Christmas with your kids, but it was actually written, believe it or not, as a monetary treatise, a sort of a satire a fairy story, if you like, written by a guy called Frank Baum. And it was about a campaign in America over 100 years ago to introduce a bimetallic standard. For reasons similar to the problems we encountered with Constantine and the Solidus, the gold standard wasn't working for a lot of people in America because the economy was growing very quickly, but the currency was based on gold. And with the exception of the gold rush at Klondike, there was a static amount of gold in the economy, particularly towards the end of the 19th century. So if you think about it, you've more and more goods and services being produced in the American economy, but you can't issue more cash. So what happens in that situation is the prices go up. And that means that, I'm sorry, the prices go down, I beg your pardon. Prices fall because you have less and less gold so you have more and more goods over which a constant amount of money backed by gold has to be spread. So it's a bit like spreading butter over bread. The more bread you have a certain amount of butter to spread over, the thinner the butter is going to be. So prices fell. The, the farmers got hit. The Midwest got hit. The East and West Coast did relatively well because they were relatively they had relatively high savings in those area. So you're already beginning to understand where you got the Wicked Witch of the East and the West, why Dorothy came from Kansas, 
And if you had read the original book, by the way, her slippers were not ruby, they were silver. So there was an attempt in this book to explain a monetary crisis and to explain the solution in terms of a bimetallic standard of shifting the dollar onto gold and silver so that you could issue more dollars, so that you could help inflate prices back. So that's the reference. Now, the gold standard that caused that problem was eventually abandoned in 1925. It was reinstated in 1948, but then abandoned again for the last time in 1971. That year, as I've said, also saw the decimalization of the British and Irish currency after effectively over a thousand years. And subsequently, we've had the electronic innovation of the 70s, 80s and 90s. Now let's go back to the future. And we're going to China again. And we're going to China because in October 2019, the Chinese Central Bank delivered a comprehensive report to the Chinese government and blockchain and cryptocurrency. So here we are again, some 14 or 1500 years after the Chinese introduced paper currency, they're doing it again. They're leading the curve on innovation. They have advocated the adoption of a cryptocurrency by the Reserve Bank of China. They have also promoted official research into the use of blockchain across the economy, including in areas of digital finance, Internet of Things, supply chain management, digital asset trading. By the way, that latter category may include renewable energy trading permits, which given the climate change agenda is a really exciting area where blockchain could play a decisive role. Not the topic of this presentation, but I think a really fascinating area. Key strategic issues at a global level are blockchain standardization. So as I've said before, blockchain enables the creation of digital scarcity, but is it fungible and is it acceptable? We had the exchange of non-fungible tokens this morning, but the question is to what extent can the ordinary citizen access the benefits of cryptocurrency on blockchain? And that is a hurdle that needs to be overcome. A second hurdle is obviously regulation and jurisdiction. So central banks are developing cryptocurrencies. Is blockchain about to become sovereignized? And what impact does that have for investors in cryptocurrency? And if there is going to be a shift from, you know, non-central bank cryptocurrency to cryptocurrency, how will how can we get coexistence and collaboration rather than a situation where you could have volatility, uncertainty and instability? And then the blockchain industry ecology, and I, I'm sorry that the point tailed off here a little bit, in a fintech strategy for Ireland, which is a, a publication that I, I steered to conclusion about four years ago, we promoted that idea of a stable collaboration between incumbents and disruptors in an orderly manner and um, preceded by a sound mapping of the ecosystem and um, so that we would stand back and see what we were dealing with, not just with blockchain and, and, and cryptocurrency, but with all aspects of the fintech environment and that was particularly up because in 2017 the effects of the previous financial crisis were still raw and their impacts on the financial services institutions were still raw and given the covid pandemic and in its impacts 
those considerations are no less valid. In fact, they're even more valid. Key practical issues are to do with national, sectoral, and global standardization of blockchain. I don't think anybody's foolish enough to say that an approach to blockchain could be standardized at a global level, but within certain sectors um, of the economy or within certain subsectors of the economy and at national jurisdiction level, and we're seeing that in China, you could have a degree of standardization that enables a sub-economy to grow in a way that blockchain becomes the way to do things. Second practical issue is regulatory regulation, regulatory dialogue. Somebody has got to regulate this. Who is it? We've had an architecture since 1948 of the International Monetary Fund, uh, the World Bank. That broke down with Brexit and the election of Trump. The question is whether some sort of global dialogue can resume and how that dialogue will regard blockchain. An alternative scenario is that blockchain becomes a battle um, for supremacy between power blocks like China, the United States and the EU. One hopes that won't happen, but it is a distinct possibility. The third thing we need to look at is a blockchain industry ecology <coughs> and promoting skill sets, dealing with energy usage, because in terms of energy usage, blockchain is a beast. It's also a paradox that the countries that have most to gain from blockchain in sub-Saharan Africa and other developing parts of the world, they are the sectors that use blockchain the least. Why? Largely because the skills, the, the coding skills and the mining skills are not as available as they are. But also a simple fact that electricity isn't as cheap because you've less need for electricity in sub-Saharan Africa. Paradoxically, the use of blockchain is much more frequent in colder countries because electricity prices are lower. Research and development into blockchain, let a hundred flowers bloom, it should be diverse, but I guess somebody needs to be keeping tabs on it and at least identifying those areas of research and development that have the greatest potential to, to, to be taken up rapidly. So I'm going to finish with three opportunities and three caveats, and I'm, I've named them after kind of the historical trends that I've identified. So I, I'm going to talk about the Constantine effect, the Tang Dynasty effect, and the Diocletian effect. I suppose the Constantine effect is that there, there may well be concerns not only about zero interest rates, but growing sovereign debt as a result of the pandemic economy and the need of sovereign governments to borrow and borrow to keep their economies going. That hasn't really kicked into a debt market crisis yet, but if you extrapolate forward a couple of years, <clears throat> depending on how long the lockdown continues, once they hit, once that tendency hits electoral cycles, you could then see difficulties in some countries with high, already high debt GDP ratios in actually repaying levels of debt. And that's when bond yields could start to increase. And if that happens, one could imagine somebody saying, well, actually, you know what? <clears throat> Long term, I want assets that are on blockchain and that are beyond the reach of what the Romans would have called, you know, currency debasement, where the emperor cannot reduce the silver content in the denarius. The second <clears throat> is what I call the, the second impact is what I call the Tang Dynasty effect. Now, in China, the efficiency gain 
was an efficiency gain between using coin on one hand and paper on the other. No prizes for guessing which was easier. The, the efficiency gain for blockchain at the moment is, is, is not evident because it's a cumbersome system to use. You need a lot of energy. You need a lot of time. If those issues could be resolved, however, blockchain might become a source of relative efficiency because the clunkiness that faces the use of um, traditional assets now, and Sir Jeffrey Voss has alluded to it, it is the growing complexity of regulation. In the use of traditional currency and traditional financial systems comes at the cost of regulation, regulation, <clears throat> which is becoming significant. Whereas the less regulated world of blockchain and cryptocurrency could be hugely attractive in bypassing that. One hopes that you wouldn't have two parallel systems going in tandem with one another because that could lead to instability. And it could lead to conflict. It could lead to a fight over who owns blockchain with established, you know, governments and central banks basically trying to wrest control from the innovators who've created this system. So my approach is, and it's a, it's a very Irish way of thinking, is get people around a table, get a dialogue going and, 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 and find a system of coexistence. And then finally, the Diocletian effect. So one of the things we're noticing, and I'm noticing as an economist um, in the post-pandemic economy, is the, what I call the divergence between, <coughs> let's call it the solidus economy, the gold economy, the high-tech companies, financial services, pharma, biotech, and so on, that are doing reasonably or relatively well out of the pandemic where wages and salaries were already quite high, profitability is high, exports are good, the gap between that sector on the one hand and on the other, a cash-strapped, domestic, vulnerable economy of hotels, pubs, retail, where people are running out of cash, we, we could conceive of blockchain as a solution to the second problem. It could facilitate smart contracts, supply chain and credit management between some of the smaller operators in our economy that are running out of cash very quickly. And that was a key issue that, that, that we dealt with in some of the recent summits that I chaired. Some caveats to these are, well, if we have the Constantine effect, who issues or regulates this new gold? Central banks seem to be moving in on cryptocurrency. Is that going to be a smooth transition with collaboration? Or could that lead to conflict? The second caveat is the green sill capital acquisition, uh, capital question. You know, green sill capital has been in the news recently. There's all sorts of issues with technology, with risk ratings. I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole, but it does raise the question as a firm that tried to do something that has been done for thousands of years, which is basically, you know, managing invoices, the supply chain, the financial aspect of supply chains. Can incumbent and disruptor, disruptor financial institutes find models of collaboration that enable companies like Greensill Capital or those like them to, to benefit from the deeper expertise and deeper knowledge and avoid some of the mistakes that were made in that case? And then finally, what I call the Diocletian effect, if you have a system of regulating and arbitrating payments 
across the more vulnerable side of your economy. You will need to regulate it. If I'm a solicitor and I do a, a smart contract with, if I'm providing legal services to somebody who's, you know, setting up websites and I say to somebody, look, you set up my website and I'll provide you with legal services. We agree some nominal exchange. I give you three hours of my professional input. You give me four hours of your expertise on website. Well, somebody needs to regulate and arbitrate that. <clears throat> and obviously, given that even small and medium firms are now trading internationally, that has to be international. Here's where I see an, an opportunity for Ireland. Why? Because we're common law. We retain a British an elect, a legal system that's quite close to the British system, but we are in the EU and we are, I suppose, a potentially trusted, honest broker on the international stage. We get on very well with the Americans, the Europeans, the Chinese, the Asians, the Africans. Yes, and really glad just to hear the talk about the blockchain. And recently, I also involved in the following all the industries. Now I have a question because recently there's a very hot topic about uh, DeFi, and I found there's one company called Now N A O S. They put they are trying to put all the offline or uh, off chain asset on chain, so that will involve a lot of you know KYC and uh, how to put it because they try to uh, tokenize the receivable uh, working capital account receivable, such kind of securitized, okay? So in this case, the DeFi, there's the meaningness of the DeFi because usually we do the, the crypto, we, we, we invest and buy in DeFi, that is uh, without a KYC. But definitely, if they put the offline, uh, off-chain asset online, they will involve the, all the like centralized, centralized exchange, not the DeFi. You know, this, this, I'm doubting about it now. Mm. And can you talk a little bit more about the, sorry, I didn't catch all the question, but thank you for it. It's a very good one. Can you t tell me a little bit more about the jurisdiction of these, of this company? Mm, this company, they are trying to, uh, this company, they are trying to put uh, all the of, of chain assets, such as account receivable. Uh, working capital, working capital requirement, and uh, the loan chain online, like the country bond, okay? Sure. Without, uh, you know, like uh, the account receivable, the collateral is the future income. Sure. Right? But and is this in China or Hong Kong or UK? No, this is uh, it's called Laos. NAO. La it's a uh, from Laos, okay. Southeast Asia. Southeast Asia. Laos. Okay. 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 Southeast Asian. Mm. So in this case, I mean, the, if we put the off-chain of, of asset online, how how do we merge into the DeFi? Okay, because the DeFi spirit is, you know, you know, we we can't do KYC, we can't uh, chase the issuer or the buyer or whatever. But if we put the offline off-chain asset on it, without collateral, like put the coin. Ethereum and Bitcoin as a collateral, and uh, we borrow the money to them, and uh, maybe there will be a lot of you know, a lot of cheating cases. What happened, my case? Mm -hmm. So it's break the DeFi spirit. What I what I mean. So how do you think about it? 
Well, it's a, it's a very deep question, and I'm not an expert in the, in the regulatory regime in Laos, nor even in China. But I do know that the, the Asia-Pacific cooperation agreement between China and Southeast Asia creates a very good forum for addressing those questions. And I'm aware also that in Hong Kong, there is, I believe, the Blockchain Belt and Road uh, Initiative, which every year has a conference that addresses these issues. So my suggestion would be, I had this conversation at the, two years ago, I was a keynote speaker at the Sino uh, European Enterprise Forum. This did come up, the question in terms of how China and obviously there are there are geopolitical issues in the Pacific and South China Seas that I don't want to go into here because I don't have the expertise and Ireland is a neutral country so we don't get involved in that stuff but but I would suggest that this is exactly what I'm talking about the need for governance and collaboration between jurisdictions in a different area so I've mentioned two fora and forgive me that I don't exactly remember the name of it but it is the it is the Asia um, Pacific Economic Cooperation Agreement that China has signed in Singapore, I think two years ago, with all the, the countries of the region, and, and I believe that includes Laos, which I think is the right forum to address those issues. And then there is the Hong Kong Blockchain uh, Belt and Road Conference every year, where which is an opportunity for industry stakeholders to provide examples of the kind that you've just provided. So rather than asking me as an Irish economist to comment on the specifics of blockchain transactions in Eastern Asia, I think the best that I can do is to advise you to reach out to people who have similar problems in Southeast Asia, identify the appropriate forum and raise them and use the collaboration, collaborative agreements that do exist. Because one of the things I like about blockchain is that it is a force for global cooperation. There are obviously tensions between different countries in that region. Um, but I also believe there's a good degree of pragmatism. The, the issues that you've identified are ones that are in everybody's interest to solve in the Southeast Asian economic region. So I think that if you, if you, if you did raise the topic in the right way, you would be contributing to some common problem solving in a way that I think would be very welcome. But I must apologize that I can't perhaps satisfy some of the more detailed aspects of your of your particular request because I just don't have enough expertise on the regulatory regimes of Southeast Asia to do so. Well, thank you, Mark. Richard's asking, during the transition you're describing from fiat to digital currencies, how much of a fight against digital do you envisage on the part of governments and regulators? Oh, that is a good question, Richard. An excellent question. You know, I I fortunate enough that uh, I, I'm afraid it could be a very big fight. And I was reading Gillian Tess had an excellent article in the in the FT recently about how investors had to worry for from central banks. So there is that risk. I think the risk will accentuate in about 18 months because the sovereign debt nervousness that I've described, if it's going to materialize and if it's going to have an impact, investor confidence in bond markets and investors possibly turning to blockchain 
as a fallback, that timeline is going to rise as the next batch of electoral cycles approach. So you're talking 2023, really, is when that's going to spike. And that is when I think the, the authorities and the central banks will be under pressure to act. As a former director of Financial Services Ireland, which was you know the largest cross-sectoral financial services sector represented body in Ireland, we were fortunate enough in that Ireland is a small enough country where people can get around the table pretty quickly and identify <laughs> solutions, common solutions. I'm not commenting on the decision of the British electorate to go for Brexit, but obviously one of the things that it does make it a little bit more difficult to do is to reach out to Europe on this. Thankfully, Mairead McGuinness, who's the EU commissioner, has set up a dialogue forum between the EU and Brussels. So if I were in the blockchain Bitcoin space in Britain, I would be approaching, first of all, I would be joining a trade association. I mean, for example, you have, is it called Future for Finance in, 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 in the UK? You have a number of fintech representative bodies that I've worked with. We, we, we set up collaboration mechanisms to prepare for Brexit. I would be engaging, to give you some practical advice, I would be engaging, getting your colleagues and stakeholders to engage in those representative bodies and to be urging collaboration and to, to see what initiatives UK for finance, sorry, uh, City Finance, is it City UK, City of London, Future for Finance, I may, I may be mispronouncing or, or, or getting some of them slightly misnamed, but I would be reaching out to them and participating in them. My guess, this is where the weakness of the market is. The market is dynamic. It's passionate it's it's ingenious it's innovative but it doesn't let's be frank it's it's full of people who i'm not saying they're out to make a profit i believe they're involved because they they have a passion for bitcoin they have a passion for <coughs> cryptocurrency and innovation but ultimately their time horizons and their incentives are relatively on the short-term side of things and their radius of concern is relatively narrow the advantages that more incumbent institutions, both in public and private sector, have is, A, they have deeper pockets, they have longer expertise, and one imagines, for example, that if, you know, if the likes of Greensill Capital had maybe been as interested in or, or as mindful of taking advice from more senior established figures of authority as they were in utilizing the the brand expanding potential of said established ambassadors that they might that that story might have ended a bit well so engage with your stakeholders look for whatever process you can find and use it to the maximum and that's the best that you, that's the best advice i can give you cool thank you gary is is making what i personally think is a very valid point that Governments and regulators are very supportive of digital currencies. It allows them to track and monitor all transactions. And and should they want, and as we've seen with, with a few cases already, control and block transactions if, if they want. And do you think resistance to digital will, in fact, be with consumers because of privacy concerns? I, I'd like to think so personally, but Mark, what is your stance yeah, on there, that? There is, a, there is a spectrum. And I think one of the reasons I enjoyed working with uh, with British-based 
representative bodies and people from the Bank of England is that obviously Britain has been far ahead in terms of regulation and far ahead in terms of the sophistication, the depth, the innovative capacity of of particularly the City of London. So when you say, you know, government and regulators have been good to the industry in Britain, that's certainly true. If I can go to a related story in the in the in the FT today, there's another end of the spectrum where we saw a move by Russia's internet sensor to start slowing Twitter to see if Russia can move towards the development of a more nationally oriented use of the internet. Again, I'm not getting into the politics of favoring one country over another. But it shows you that in a global economy, there is a spectrum out there. And unfortunately, whereas the UK and there, there are other uh, jurisdictions that are very positive, I could mention Sweden, I could mention Estonia. There is a spectrum out there. And against the backdrop of geopolitical fragmentation, let's say, which which has risen in the last five years, it's not necessarily the case that Britain can go it alone however good its own indigenous regime is. So that's why I hope that the initiative by of Mairead McGuinness, who's the Irish EU Commissioner for Financial Services, in setting up a bridge with the British financial services sector, principally to overcome other problems, which are to do with Brexit, that that could be used and should be used to the maximum possible opportunity to address those questions as well and ensure that there isn't a knee-jerk kickback against industry. And we've seen with vaccination how we've, we've seen how kind of sometimes policy responses by particularly supranational authorities can be disjointed and badly thought out. That often happens when industry doesn't communicate well with government. So, you know, the more you communicate with government and the civil servants, the less likely you are to get that backlash. Didier is asking, he's curious about the monetary system and the means of exchange in ancient Europe, if you could, that if it's possible to give a brief explanation of that or, or maybe pinpoint us to any any resources that we should be looking at. Well, contrary to, contrary to my own sense of age, I wasn't actually alive at the time believe it or not. So I have no direct experience of those ancient systems other than remembering my grandfather explaining to me that there were 200 and <coughs> pence in a pound and 20 shillings in a pound. In in Egypt, sorry, in ancient Egypt. In Egypt. Oh, there, yeah. I'm afraid you have me. The The Egyptians are the one, that's the one monetary system that, that has escaped me. I, I apologize to any Egyptians who are who are watching and I'm sure it was as sophisticated as anything the Romans or the Greeks came up with but it, it is one thing I know I don't know about so no worries and um someone's asking how quick do you think the EU or other central banks will issue a digital currency obviously some are already looking at that and, and do you have a view on which country will start using smart contracts and how long it will take for these contracts to become ubiquitous well, I would look to the Scandinavians to win that race quite decisively. And the Riksbank in Sweden, as well as being the oldest central bank in the world, it, it pips the Bank of England by, I think, about 11 years. The Bank of England was set up in 1694, Riksbank, I think, 1683. 
because Sweden, to my knowledge, last time I looked, is not in the euro. Um, it has both the capacity, the skill sets, and I think the domestic base of political support, and also the links with other high-tech, very, very fintech-friendly countries like Finland, Estonia, Denmark, and Norway. So that's where I place my bet. As regards to the European Union, there's an interesting contrast between the speed with which the Central Committee of the Chinese Communist Party was able to endorse cryptocurrencies on a very decisive move towards blockchain, which, by the way, was a 180-degree reversal. <clears throat> Five years ago, we thought the Chinese were going to reject cryptocurrency completely, and they've embraced it, and embraced it much faster than anybody else. So I, I guess that the, the European Union is obviously dependent on the Franco-German axis at the moment, which, which drives consensual decision-making. <clears throat> Unfortunately, I don't think either blockchain or cryptocurrency is on top of their list. As far as central banks are concerned, the European uh, system of central banks governs the Eurozone. It needs to move with relative consensus on this, and that obviously will delay anything that Europe does by a matter of years. So I don't expect Europe to be in the front row. I expect China, followed by Sweden, and I think Britain has a good chance of being number three or four because of the the very high quality of expertise of the Bank of England. And as I said, the fact that London <coughs> is still one of the, if not the foremost financial centre in the world. Cool, thank you. And last one from David, as DeFi matures and becomes easier to use, will significant funds move away from the banks and what effect will that have? I mean, I think we're already to a degree seeing that, but I, I'm, that? I'm a bit of a coward on that one, if you don't mind. I, I, I won't be too, I could answer that with a bit more preparation, but I'm afraid that one I'll have to, I'll have to kick that to touch with apologies because I wouldn't want to give anyone a wrong steer on that and I'd need to scratch my head a little bit about it more. No, no worries. I've definitely seen that from talking to a few fans, David. And Just uh, super quick for a last question from Richard. Do you think the speed of development of digital currencies will accelerate most quickly due to the weakening of, of their own currencies? Yes, I, I, think that's, I think that's a fair assessment and I think that will happen um, I think if you look, if you look at the countries with, it's not just the debt GDP ratio. <clears throat> I think if you look at political fragmentation, and if you look at the ability or inability of a sovereign power to repay its debt, and you go back to Diocletian's problem where he simply didn't have the capacity to pay his troops. Those are the countries, and I won't name them if you don't mind, but those they're not difficult to spot. It's high-debt countries with high political fragmentation where in two or three years' time, when the next round of electoral cycles have come up, you're going to have very fragmented governments trying to put budgets together. And um, the more fragmented a government is, the tougher it is for that government <coughs> to take the spending decisions that are needed. And I think that kicks in in about 18, 20 months, uh, 20, 18 to 24 months. I'd be keeping an eye on those countries very closely. I was just wondering, with the Diocletian effect, I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing that wrong, 
where you said that it could help more cash-strapped SMEs, is this assuming that they're going to be providing more credit than the current financial system? Well, what I think, Shanali, is it's a potential use of blockchain and it would need endorsement by government. And I think if you look what Greensill Capital was trying to do, in a way, it was that on an international scale. And why it went wrong, there were a number of there were a number of credit risk issues, there were technology issues. I don't I don't know that they were using the most advanced technology that they could have been using for this to to work. I think it needs, I won't say the strong hand of government, but it needs the very decisive hand of regulators and government to work together in collaboration with industry stakeholders to identify those sectors where this approach can keep people alive. So, for example, let's look at the hotel sector. Let's imagine the potential to actually make payments to hotel uh, to hotels on blockchain for holidays that will be taken in the future when, please God, lockdown is a thing of the past, but we don't know when. And if you had a, a, a system of government maybe pioneering and taking a sector like that that needs the intervention and using it as a test case, I don't want to say a guinea pig because that suggests you know, exploitation or some form of risk of things going wrong. I think a prototype developing a prototype or pilot piloting i think is the word i'm looking for if you could take a couple of sectors like that where the need is very good they're very high the cash flow is very low where the employment intensity is very high where there's a lot of jobs on the line then i think you can get the political will and the resources you need to make it work and this is the great thing rather than a blanket approach to blockchain of trying to get blockchain to work for a large number of sectors at the same time, I would say that both the pandemic uh, crisis and its impact on cash flow on specific industries on one hand, but also the huge opportunity to encourage renewable energy sources, trade, you know, for tradable energy, uh, renewable energy trading permits to be developed online. Those are two specific opportunities where the political will and the resources will probably get things done quickly and that will create a good example to move for the next sector. I think the word I'm looking for is uh, low-hanging fruit. I was just, I'm just confused on how this credit system differs from the current one because if you're using that example, currently like the government are giving more credit and like tax breaks and incentives to like firms that are trying to go into renewables so i was i'm just a bit confused on how this provides more credit or more well they are providing credit but i think that's that's the problem that the credit that they're providing what i'm seeing on the sme side of things shanali is that there's a reticence in the small business sector to work up balances in existing forms of you know currency because of uncertainty about the future. Whereas the Diocletian example that I cited was that, you know, the worst thing that that was going to happen to you was that you'd have to produce more of what you produced already. The idea of borrowing money when you don't know whether you're going to be open um, for business in six months' time, nine months' time, is not appealing to a lot of SMEs. Whereas if government were able to underpin a system of that I've described 
I think it could have take up. But I think I I, 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 I caveat that by saying that it, it needs to be rolled out in specific sectors of the economy. In terms of the renewable energy challenge, that's a that's a deeper that's a deeper question. Well, everyone, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Mark, for your time and for answering those questions. I'll 